turn with me to Isaiah 43. Except by 43, I mean Isaiah 40. We're going to end up in Isaiah 43, but I want to take a half a step back and remind ourselves what Isaiah is saying, what the Holy Spirit is saying through Isaiah in this section of prophecy. Jim has Bibles he's desperately trying to give away if you need one. We know, Jim up front, we know we've said every week for the last several weeks that Isaiah in this section is writing to, speaking to Judah in exile. Israel in exile, because after Israel returns, God consistently calls her Israel. So we're giving ourselves permission to be a little less fastidious about saying Judah from this point on out. But back in Isaiah 40, back at the beginning of this section, God gave us a more detailed outline of the second part, the second half of the book. A more detailed outline of what he has to say to Judah in exile. If you've made your way back to Isaiah 40, you're ahead of me. Let me catch up. Look at verse 2. Speak comfort to Jerusalem, Isaiah said, and cry out to her three things. One, that her warfare is ended. Two, that her iniquity is pardoned. Three, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. We touched on this really, really briefly when we were in chapter 40, but we had a lot of other things we were covering, and I probably didn't do a good job of highlighting this. There in chapter 40, verse 2, we have an outline for the whole rest of Isaiah. We have an outline for, for what the Lord has to say from this point to the end of the book. Tell Israel her warfare is ended. That's the topic sentence for chapter 40, verse 12 or so, through chapter 48. Those chapters, those nine chapters, are about... God's warfare, his enmity with Israel, ceasing. Chapters 49 to 57 are all about Israel's iniquity being pardoned, both at the end of the 70 years, the 70 year sentence, the 70 years in exile for Judah's idolatry. Okay, you've served your time. And at the end of time, at the end of the age, your iniquity for rejecting your Messiah is pardoned, the short-term and the long-term fulfillment. And then chapter 58 to chapter 66, the price has been paid. The price has been paid. Believing Israel will receive double blessing. Unbelieving Israel, twice the judgment. And we talked about Israel being the firstborn, and that's why the double We'll talk more about that. We'll talk about more of these other sections, section two, section three, when we get to them, obviously. But tonight, I circle back here just to remind ourselves, before we get into the deep weeds, the bigger point that this chapter, chapter 43, is serving, the bigger point the Holy Spirit is making, the objective that the Lord has in giving us chapter 43. Isaiah here, the Holy Spirit through Isaiah, is amplifying, is expanding on the idea that Israel's warfare has come to an end. God's warfare against Israel, God's proxy war, is over. And tonight in particular, 
These chapters, we've, we've already seen God toggling back and forth, talking about ancient Babylon coming against Israel and future Babylon coming against Israel. Tonight in particular, God will have primarily in view the future warfare, the future siege of a future Babylon and the future deliverance of Israel by her Messiah, by Jesus. How do we know that it's future? That's always one of the interpretive challenges. Is this short-term fulfillment or long-term fulfillment? Is this Babylon that has been or Babylon that will be? Scripture will interpret Scripture for us tonight. Let's dive in and let's, let's see how that unfolds. Chapter 43. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I've redeemed you. I've called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Saba in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Let's pause there. So far, so good, right? Words of encouragement. And these words of encouragement are sort of one-size-fits-all words of encouragement. They're fitting for God's people everywhere, in all times. Water and fire, verse 2, we reflexively think water and fire, we reflexively think judgment, don't we? We think water and Noah, we think fire, well, that's the end of the age, 2 Peter 3 and so forth. But both are also pictures of purification. Pass through the water and not drown. Endure the fire, not be destroyed. And I'm sure you can think of examples of both of those. That's the sense in which God is invoking fire and water here. You'll come through this, whatever you're going through, You'll come out on the other side of this, and you'll come out better. You'll come out closer to me, God is saying. You'll come out, you'll come through this trial remembering who I am, reminded that I love you. So far, so good. Words of encouragement fitting for God's people anytime, anywhere. And I'm sure they were encouraging to Judah in exile. I hope they're encouraging to us tonight. But let's read a little further and then turn around and come back because I think there's something more going on, something more specific that we can see. Verse 5, Fear not, for I'm with you. I'll bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I'll say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I've created for my glory, I've formed him. Yes, I've made him. Three more verses and we get some clarity. Three additional verses and we know this can't be the captives released by Cyrus returning to the land. Why? The scope doesn't match. The scope doesn't remotely line up. Cyrus released how many? 42-some thousand, we read in Ezra? 
42,000 returning from Babylon, heading back to the land, and heading back to the land from one direction only, from the east. But the scope that we just read about had all of God's people returning. Verse 7. All of God's people, not just a fraction of them, everyone called by his name, and coming from all directions, east and west, verse 5, north and south, verse 6. So the only thing that could possibly be in view, the only thing that could accommodate the scope of what Isaiah just spoke of, is the regathering of God's people at the return of Jesus. This is how we know we're looking at a longer-term fulfillment. Now, with that in mind, let's have some fun, because it's Wednesday and it's what we do. Go back to the beginning and think back a few years ago. I was trying to remember how many years it was that Rob, Pastor Rob, took us through Ruth. Was that three summers ago? Four, something like that. When we were in Ruth, or when you were in Ruth in your own study, undoubtedly you came across the idea of a kinsman redeemer, a goel. Does that strike a chord? Part of the Mosaic Law, Leviticus 25, if you want to track it down. The short version, just to remind ourselves, if you got yourself in debt in ancient Israel, as a Jew, as someone under Mosaic Law, if you incurred a debt that you had no hope of paying, your only recourse would be to sell yourself into slavery. And that slavery would last for seven years. The seventh year, you'd go free. But at any time during the seven years, a near relative could come and pay the redemption price. Free the slave. And that's where we get kinsman, a near relative, paying the price to redeem. Kinsman, redeemer. Goel in the Hebrew. So three qualifications to be a kinsman, redeemer. You had to be a near kinsman. You had to be willing to pay the price. It was optional. It wasn't mandatory. And you had to be able, you had to have the funds, you had to have the resources to do it. So with that in mind, rewind the tape to verse 1. Actually, rewind back past verse 1, go back to chapter 42, look at verse 24. Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Remember, these verses were about Israel's stubborn, rebellious hearts, resistance to God's voice. And, and God's response. Who gave Jacob for plunder and Israel to the robbers? Right here, says God. Was it not the Lord, he against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, nor were they obedient to his law. Therefore he's poured down, uh, the, he's poured down on them the fury of his anger, and the strength of battle had set him on fire all around. Because of Israel's sin, because of the debt Israel incurred with her sin, a debt she couldn't pay, God sold his people to robbers, sold them, in effect, to the, to the Gentile nations. That's how chapter 42 ended. Remember the chapter delineations, the chapter divisions, purely a man-made invention. So in God's idea, this is a continuation of that thought. Because of the debt Israel owed, because of the sin that she sinned, God sold her into slavery. But, chapter 43, God continues, that's not the end of the story. That's not how the story ends. I'm going to redeem you. 
and I'm going to redeem you the way that I taught you, the way that I showed you in my law. But now, chapter 43, verse 1, one of those but God pivots. But now, you were slaves, you've been slaves, but now, change of pace, change of direction. Different plan, different program, but now I'm going to redeem you. Verse 1, because I can. I made you, God says in verse 1. I named you. You're mine. I'm qualified to redeem you. God is saying, I am a near kinsman. That was the first of the three requirements, right? Verse 2, God says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Second requirement of a goel. Willingness. God just said that he was willing. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to leave you where you are. I want to redeem you. I'm willing to bring you back. Third requirement, ability. Near kinsman, willing to redeem. Third requirement, ability to redeem. Funds, resources. Verse 3, I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Israel for your ransom, Ethiopia, Ethiopia and Saba, in your place. Short term, God is saying, I traded the rest of the continent of Africa for you. I let Cyrus have these other nations because I knew it would set in motion a chain of events that would free you. I traded them for you. That's the short term interpretation. But remember, primarily God has a longer term fulfillment in view. Longer term, look down. Therefore, verse 4, I will give men for you and people for your life. I will give a man for you, a person for your life, the man, Christ Jesus, and the blood he shed for Israel's ransom. Jesus, kinsman, willing, able, redeemer. Enables the people to be freed, and verse, verses 5, 6, and 7, and regathered, and go back to where we left off at the bottom of verse 7. The sons from afar, daughters from the ends of the earth, verse 7, everyone who's called, whom I've created, whom I've formed, yes, I've made him, being regathered that the millennial kingdom might begin. Look at those verbs again in verse 7. Created, formed, made. You want to understand a passage or a verse? Look at the verbs. Those, we'll expand on this in, in later chapters, but there's a, there's a foreshadowing here I don't want to miss. Created, formed, made. God is invoking the language of creation in connection with Israel's redemption. There's a foreshadowing here that God's going to amplify later that the redemption of Israel is connected to the redemption of creation. And we're going to see some effects of the curse undone in the millennial kingdom as God remakes, as God reforms, as God reboots creation. But let's keep going. That's down the pike. Let's keep going where we're at. Verse 8. Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Israel was made, we know this, spiritually blind. Why? Rejected her Messiah. Today, 
largely unable to see Jesus in God's word, unable to hear the truth even when it's preached. One of the consequences of Israel rejecting her Messiah. But in tribulation, God will call out some among the blind and give them eyes to see. He will call out some among the deaf and allow them to not only hear, but preach the 144,000. Some will see, some will hear, others will not. But one thing is going to be true for all in Israel. When Jesus returns, no one will be able to say God didn't make his plan of salvation abundantly clear. Verse 9, let the nations be gathered together. Let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say it is truth. Isaiah unpacked this a couple chapters back. Lots of religions claim to offer a way of salvation. When Jesus returns, he's going to ask, where are they? What have they done? What prophecies have they fulfilled? I'm waiting. Where are they? Israel will engage with Antichrist. We know this. Antichrist will claim to offer a way of salvation, a path forward, a path to freedom and peace and prosperity. Jesus returns and, says, and is going to say, where's the deliverance on his promise? Where's the fulfillment of everything he said would happen? Where's he? Meanwhile, here I am. Verse 10, you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you might know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I created you. I redeemed you, at least those of you who were willing I redeemed you in the face of opposition. I redeemed you even though the forces of darkness and Satan himself stood against me. Verse 12, I've declared and saved. I've proclaimed and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. And remember, Lord, in the, in the smaller capital letters, that's Y-H-W-H, that's Yahweh, but in the context of Isaiah, God is almost always using that name to remind us he is the covenant-making, covenant-keeping Lord. I said I was going to do this, and behold, I'm doing it. Indeed, before the day was, I am he, and there was no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? I have saved you. No one can undo it. No one could do what I have done. No one can undo what I have done, nothing can stand, we sang on Sunday, against our God. Verse 14, thus says the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, the Chaldeans who rejoice in their ships. I'm the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Tempting to wonder here if we flip back to a short-term fulfillment, a near-term interpretation. A lot of commentators think so. And the reason they think so, geek out with me here, the Babylonians were proud of their navy. 
the Babylonians figured out how to sail all the way down the Euphrates to, to the Persian Gulf. The Assyrians tried for years to pull that off, and they failed every time. The Babylonians were proud of their ships. So what God is saying here, he's, he's referencing that, he's invoking that, and he's saying their ships of rejoicing, the ships in which they take so much pride, are going to be their ships of mourning. The, flip, the, the ships that they take to go to battle are going to be the ships that they use to flee. Perfectly valid way to read that. I, I, I don't think we have to shy away from the near-term, you know, the ancient connotations that are here. But if we read it in context, it's clearly a shadow. The deliverance from Babylon in this context is a shadow, is a short-term fulfillment that tells us that we can be confident the long-term fulfillment will happen exactly the way that God says. Because look where he goes next. Verse 16, look what he talks about next. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters. So he keeps this, this sea idiom going, but he shifts to make a bigger point. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together, they shall not rise. They are extinguished, they are quenched like a wick. Think for a moment, what's the reference here? What event is God invoking? This is the exodus. This is the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt and the destruction of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea after Israel passes through. Why is God bringing this up? He's bringing it up to say, hey, remember that? Remember the exodus and the parting of the sea and the crashing of the sea? Wasn't that cool? I'm going to do something way, way bigger, much, much greater. Verse 18, do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I'll make even a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Remember the Exodus, asked God? Good. Now forget it. Because I'm going to do something that's going to make it like it never happened. I'm going to do something so much greater, the exodus won't be worth remembering. You won't even think to bring it up. That can't be the liberation from Babylon. Makes no sense. Again, just look at the scope. Cyrus said to what? 40,000 Israelites in exile. He, take that road. Go home. Just, just follow it. It'll bring you back to the land. Cyrus freed 40,000 and set them marching down a road and told them, you're not going to face any opposition. I'm giving you safe passage. Compare that to the Exodus. Several million children of Israel fleeing the Egyptian army. Several million children of Israel with the army in hot pursuit. Return to the land under Cyrus isn't remotely comparable. 
Return of the land under Cyrus, there's, there's no way that makes Israel forget the Exodus. But the second coming, <laughs> the events preceding it, the events surrounding it, the events following it, yeah, that'll make us forget everything that happened before. Verse 20. The beasts of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. We've seen that idiom before and we've observed before. Certainly there's a spiritual interpretation. God meeting his people with floods of living water, a picture of the Holy Spirit here. Is there also a literal fulfillment? God providing for his people while they flee Antichrist's army? Quite possibly. This people I've formed for myself, they shall declare my praise. Why? Because they're redeemed. But God's not done. How are they redeemed? How does God ever redeem? Not, he wants us to remember, by our work, by our labor, by our efforts. Verse 22. But you have not called upon me, O Jacob, You've been weary of me, O Israel. You've not brought me the sheep for your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I've not caused you to serve with grain offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You've brought me no sweet cane with money, nor have you satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. What you have done, still verse 24, you've burdened me with your sins. You've wearied me with your inequities. It doesn't jump off the page, but Isaiah pretty much just named every category of offering. All of the sacrifices under Levitical law here are, are referenced. Burnt offerings, blood offerings, meal offerings, incense offerings, sugarcane offerings. you got to go to Exodus 30 for that one. Money offerings, fat offerings. There might be some minor ones missing here, but, but clearly his intent is to point at the full scope of all of the offerings Israel was called to offer. And God is saying, short term, I'm not delivering you from Babylon, short term, near term, because of your offerings. I mean, that's kind of obvious because in Babylon they couldn't offer any offerings. They didn't have a temple. They couldn't worship. They couldn't sacrifice. You didn't offer thing one in exile, God says, but I'm still going to deliver you. And at the end of the tribulation, interesting, we know Israel will have a temple. I don't know if you prophecy watchers saw the headline this week, the Temple Institute has announced again that they think maybe, hopefully, possibly, they have a red heifer. Temple Institute for years has been busy constructing the garments, the instruments, the implements, everything necessary to resume sacrifices at a temple that they fully believe will be rebuilt, they fully intend to rebuild. But all of the offerings that you offer in that temple, God says, they're not enough. Because your sin is going to be so much greater than the sum of all of those offerings. Those offerings aren't going to be why Jesus returns. Remember when we talked about grace a few weeks ago in Romans? We said grace isn't that little extra that fills in the gap between all of our works and, and salvation. It isn't, it isn't that, that just little bump we need to get over the top. No, it's the whole thing. All of the offerings that Israel has offered will offer 
only cover the sin. They don't erase the sin. And the implication here seems to me they didn't go very far. They won't go very far in, in, in the tribulation, that, that tribulation temple. Those offerings won't go very far to even cover the sin. So why does Jesus return? Why does he save? Why does he ever save? Because he, grace, be, yes, because he chooses to. Verse 25, I, even I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. As far as east is from the west. We're saved by grace through faith. It was true Sunday when we were in Romans. It's true tonight in Isaiah. It's true during the church age. It'll be true at the end of the age. We're saved by grace through faith. And just to make sure Israel understands that, at the end of the chapter here, God underlines it. He pulls out his highlighter and he, and he, and he colors it. Verse 26, put me in remembrance let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. Let's go back to the courtroom, God says. Call your first witness. Present your first piece of evidence. Do you deserve salvation? I'm waiting. Nothing? Yeah, I didn't think so. The fact of the matter, Your Honor, your first father sinned and your mediators have transgressed against me. Commentators debate who is in view with first father. Who does that refer to? Is it Abraham, the father of Israel, that God called out of the Ur of the Chaldees? Maybe. Is it Jacob, whose, whose name is Israel, who's, who lent his name to the land? Maybe. Is it Adam? Does it go back even further? Doesn't matter. I mean, it's an, it's an interesting debate, but whoever it is, the point stands. The history of Israel, God is saying, the history of Israel is a history of sin. The patriarchs sinned, the judges sinned, the kings sinned, the priests, the mediators. Oh yeah, they sinned. Sinners, everyone, deserving of forgiveness. No, not one, not even one. So, God says, I'm going to judge the nations. I'm going to judge the leaders. But chapter 44, I'm going to deliver the faithful among your people. I'll profane the princes of the sanctuary, verse 28. I'll give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. Because if rejecting Messiah wasn't enough, there's the whole treaty with Antichrist. I'm going to hand you over for judgment because you can't pretend for a moment you don't deserve it, God says to Israel. But I'm going to deliver the faithful from among your people. Yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you? Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, who I have chosen. For I'll pour water on him who's thirsty and flood on the dry ground. I'll pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob. Another will write with his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Good should we meet tonight. What do we take away? I think tonight's a good night to go back to our refrain. 
to our hermeneutic, the things that will be true for Israel in her redemption, the things that will be true when Jesus rules and reigns physically in Jerusalem can be true for you and I tonight. Because right now, Jesus told us the kingdom of God is in you. These verses, these truths, these promises are for us. They're written to Israel, make no mistake. They're written to Israel past, they're written to Israel future. These verses are about Israel, but they're also for us. The truths that we are reading are applicable to us. We are chosen. Stave chapter 44, verse 1. We're chosen. And verse 2, we're created by God. Notice the order. God chose us even before he created us. Before he formed us in our mother's wombs, he knew us, called us by name. We chose him, but he chose us first. We love him, but he first loved us. And tonight, because that's true, because he chose us and we chose him, because he loved us and we respond to that love and we love him, there's nothing that can separate us. Tonight, verse 3, the Holy Spirit is available to us. Torrents of living water to revive us, to refresh us, to enable us to live for him. Even, rewind to the top of 43, even through trials, even when the floodwaters are over our heads, even, though, even when we're walking through fire, God says, I'm with you. He says that to us. He says to us, I've created you, formed you, and redeemed you, called you by name. You're mine. And no matter what happens to you, no matter what mess you get yourself into, no matter what trial I allow to sanctify you, I will, he says, be with you. That's a promise he makes to Israel. It's a promise we can also lay hold of. It's a reality that will be made manifest in the future. It's a reality for you and I tonight. We got to cling to it. We got to claim it. We get to walk in it. This is a promise made centuries ago, but it's a promise to us as well. And the, and, and the challenge that God raises here, the warning that he brings up here is a warning to us to not do what Israel did. Choose God and keep choosing Embrace God and keep embracing. There's no other name given by which we must be saved, by which we must be being saved. Verse 18, God says, the exodus is great. I'm going to do something even greater. He says to us, your justification is great, but it's only the beginning. Your justification was the greatest thing that ever happened to you. But we're not done. Greater things yet to come. Past fulfillment, great. Celebrate it. Sing songs about it. Rejoice in it. But do not think our relationship ended with it. It's just starting. 
I have things yet to do in you. I have things yet to do through you that are going to be just as good or better. Don't stop with what God has done. Keep looking for what God is going to do. Keep looking at what God is doing. Keep showing the world what God is doing. Keep boasting in what God is doing. When fiery trials come, don't go back to idols. Don't go back to offerings. Don't go back to sacrifices. They, and then don't go back to self-reliance. They didn't save you in the first place. They're not going to save you now. Cling to him. He is our kinsman redeemer. He gave his life to save us. He's going to keep on saving us. He's God who makes roads through the wilderness, rivers in the desert. He says tonight to us, to you and me, right here, I am God who's going to meet you where you are. I am Emmanuel. I am God with you. I will get you where you're going. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to preserve you. I'm going to bless you. Let me. Trust me. Watch me. Jesus, thank you that that is who you are. We've seen it. We know it. We see it in the pages of your word. We see it in the pages of our lives. You are faithful. When we're faithful, you're faithful. When we're faithless, you're faithful. Open our eyes to the ways you want to love us if we will let you. To the things that your spirit wants to do in and through us if we stop resisting you the testimony that you want to write to the glory of your name as we surrender to you. Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem and we know in praying that that peace only comes when the Prince of Peace comes. Jesus, come quickly. We are ready. But until you do, and if you tarry, Lord, make us your witnesses, the witnesses that you always wanted Israel to be. Teach us, show us, lead us, make us those witnesses. Tonight, tomorrow, all of the tomorrows that you ordain for us. Give us peace in storms. Joy in the midst of trials confidence that you are Emmanuel.